the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, I'm thinking we need to have a serious conversation. He keeps using my name on the radio. Now, how often do I mention Bob Sauer? Do you ever hear me? Bob Sauer, Bob Sauer, Bob Sauer. I don't do that. I'm trying to be respectful. (laughs) Hello. No, not as crazy as he sounds, but almost. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us. This wet, rainy, crazy... There any chance anywhere of winter ending uh, Tuesday edition of Lifeline here for the twenty uh, first of May jam packed program for you coming up a little bit later on tonight we're going to be talking with best selling author Linda Rooks you have perhaps heard her um, she's made multiple appearances down through the years on Focus on the Family you've also perhaps read her um, she's got a number of best selling books and is a frequent contributor to today's Christian Woman Linda's going to join us to talk about a new book, a life experience, one that sadly more than 50% of the American marriages face at one point or another, and that is separation and divorce. But hopefully short-circuiting the divorce part by addressing separation. Um, There is an alarming statistic that indicates that fully 80% of those marriages that go into quote-unquote separation wind up becoming part of the 50 percentile in divorce. Is there a way to prevent that from happening? We're going to get to that conversation. Linda Rooks, by the way, married for 40 years, and at the halfway point in her marriage relationship, she and her husband were separated fully for three years. God did a miracle. We'll see if there's one in store for you as well, and we'll get to that conversation coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. All right, as we uh, lead off the show, let's uh, dive headfirst into well, a couple of big news stories. And as we welcome our uh, first guest tonight, I'm going to have him comment on the one that's been capturing headline news throughout today, and that is the chit-chat once again about potential impeachment, or at least starting the process, initiating a conversation about it. You have to wonder whether or not this is um, good, solid politics, or perhaps uh, Democrats trying to hand over their win from 2008. 18 back to the Republicans come 2020. Joining me now with some insights on these and other stories, we're talking with Bob Zadek. Bob is a best-selling author. He is an attorney and a talk show host. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, can be heard uh, throughout the country each Sunday morning at 8 a.m. here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area on our sister station, 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer. Again, that's every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for The Bob Zadek Show. And Robert, as always, great to have you on the program. 
Thank you for having me, Craig. You're a great host. Thank you. Let's talk a bit first about uh, the growing number of House Democrats that are pushing to open impeachment proceedings. Um, for the longest time, Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, I think has sort of tried to keep her foot on the uh, the, the the brake and say, hey, let, let's not get the cart before the horse here. I think she's attempted to engage in, in more politically expedient uh, take on this subject, perhaps recognizing that the likelihood of an impeachment going down to any serious degree is um, or, or consequences for the president is probably no more likely than it was uh, 20 years ago for Bill Clinton. When we hear this chit-chat, what do you think of all this? Is this just political grandstanding? Is there any there there when it comes to even trying to discuss the possibility of impeachment and on what grounds? Well, you ask such an obvious question, Greg. It's the most obvious question you've ever asked me. You said... I guess with a straight face, although I can't see you, is this political grandstanding? Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Is the sky blue? (laughs) Of course it's, Craig, of course it is political grandstanding. Uh, But the question is not whether it is political grandstanding. That's obvious. But the question is whether there's more to it whether there's more to be said about it. That is to say, whether, um, what will happen procedurally, uh, whether or not uh, the offenses are, alleged offenses are impeachable, that's a fascinating question. And as to whether or not this is the kind of process that the founders envisioned when they, cre- they empowered the House to bring articles of impeachment and the Senate to run an impeachment trial, whether this is what the founders had in mind. And lastly, we can discuss whether all of this is good or bad for American democracy and for the political life of our country. So, Craig, we have four hours of work to do, so you might want to alert the network that we're taking over. Yeah, we <laughs> no doubt about it. I, I realize that this is a complicated issue to unpack, and, and while we want to talk about other issues during our time today, I, I'm, I'm eager to get your input. Your, your arena, of course, of expertise for folks that follow your program, the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, know that you are a student of the United States Constitution. You probably understand more about the history of the Constitution. Uh, than certainly most politicians who are sworn to uphold it these days. What is your sense when when we hear this talk about uh, at least initiating dialogue, even the Judiciary uh, Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler is now suggesting that, yes, uh, we need to consider this. Is there something there based on what little we know or to the what degree we understand of the findings of the Mueller report that, that ascends to the level of, quote-unquote, high crimes and misdemeanors to create an impeachable offense here. I did a whole show just on the meaning of that short phrase you have recited quite accurately, high crimes and misdemeanors. And the the conclusion is inevitable that those are political words intended to have a political meaning. Therefore, uh, uh, In the past, uh, Gerald Ford, I think, observed that high crimes and misdemeanors means whatever the House chooses it to mean. Now, 
uh, that was Gerald Ford's commentary around the time of the threatened Nixon impeachment. But uh, and there's been a lot of discussion on whether he was correct constitutionally. But at the end of the day, the House can do. Uh, that is, the House is free to operate as it sees fit, which means Pelosi, who runs the place, can do what she sees fit. And therefore, she can go through the entire process of, of bringing and of br- developing articles of impeachment, which means that's something like an indictment. It's not a conviction, it's an indictment. And then, just like in the criminal process, once an indictment is issued by law enforcement, but in this case by the House, then a trial takes place, and in this case a trial takes place in the Senate. That's the system the founders have given us. So uh, the fact that the House votes articles of impeachment only means there will be a trial with all of the upheaval that comes from that trial, with all of the political fallout, but the House just decides, let's see if we can vote out articles of impeachment. So that process is kind of, in many ways, it's high drama, but it's only the beginning of the drama. It only sends the articles of impeachment to the Senate for the trial in which the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is the presiding judge and the House of Representatives is the prosecutor. Um, And then there is the president has his, or her, in this case, his defense, and a trial takes place. And that's the process. So the indictment is um, whether or not there are articles of impeachment that is, first and foremost, a political calculation uh, which Nancy Pelosi and her advisors will make a decision on. And they will make a decision purely, purely on the effect on the 2020 electoral process. And it's almost impossible to predict. Um, we don't have the inside scoop the way um, House Leader Pelosi does. Speaker Pelosi. So therefore, I don't have any idea whether it's a good idea politically or not. I kind of don't care that much. It's a political calculation. It's not anything that affects the Constitution. And it's hard for me. I couldn't begin to predict whether or not they're going to actually vote out articles of impeachment. They are obviously throwing red meat to the base. They are doing what the base expects them to do, to at least talk about impeachment a whole lot. Whether they do it or not, we'll see. And we'll see also whether it ends up being a good idea or not. That is the effect of the 2020 election. Now, we, of course, have been down this road in in, um, recent history, in modern history, at least twice. Um, There were uh, an an inquiry that moved into proceedings for impeachment of Richard Nixon. He, of course, resigned from office before a final decision could be handed down to remove him from office. Bill Clinton was, in fact, impeached, though not removed from office. So, as you point out, it's a slap on the wrist. Um, It it is like, uh, you know, an indictment 
handed down, but an indictment and a conviction that leads to removal from office are two entirely different things. And and, and I suspect there there is, as you've suggested, a lot more political drama and showmanship to this than the notion of of, of any degree to which I mean the 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 Democrats would have to hope to not only uh, get an impeachment in the House, move it to then the Senate, and then have a Senate make a decision. And of course, the Senate controlled by Republicans, unless there's some sort of an earthquake reversal come 2020, the likelihood of the president being removed is probably slim to none. It sounds like it's a tool that's there given by the founding fathers for extreme cases. And I wonder whether or not this circumstance, in your opinion, or even the last time we had this debate concerning Bill Clinton really rose to the occasion of being that severe that the president had committed some kind of a, a crime, as we suggest here, that would rise to the level where he was no longer fit to be president. The conventional wisdom is it is generally a bad idea for the House to vote out articles of impeachment unless you have bipartisan support in the Senate for impeachment. In Nixon's case, the Republicans had, for the most part, abandoned Nixon. Therefore, the impeachment had a high likelihood of success. And therefore, that was the right thing to do when the House voted out articles of impeachment at the time. In the case of Clinton, the opposite was true. It was a bad calculation because it didn't have much likelihood of success in the Senate, and that was a bad idea. In this case, there's also, absent a smoking gun, almost no likelihood of success uh, in the Senate, and therefore it is, as you and I are outsiders, probably a bad political calculation, but it may not be a bad political calculation to talk about it a whole lot. It also has the negative effect of meaning that's all the House will talk about, and the House will go to the voters in 2020 with the the Democrats having been in control, but having done absolutely nothing. And that's a threat to House members in vulnerable seats. Of course, they go there with nothing to show for their salary at the end of the two years. And therein is the the big risk, perhaps, that um, while they won the majority of the House in 2018, uh, the political risk here, while perhaps playing to the base, uh, you know, they have to be mindful that they are not strictly uh, playing to their base, but it's also to the American people. And if a majority look at this and say, hey, uh, you guys had two years, we gave it back to you, you fumbled the ball, so guess what? We're going to take it back from you come fall of 2020, then this may potentially um, backfire on them big time. Again, it's all speculation at this point, but if there's no there there, and here's the final question on this, uh, Bob, and then we'll move on to other subject matter, but if, if there's no there there at the moment, that that really gives them a compelling argument to move from inquiry to to impeachment proceedings. I have to wonder, given the what almost dozen um, varied investigations taking place in New York, uh, why not just let New York State do its thing? That is beyond the reach of, of multiple levels of, of both the president and Congress, and see what comes of it. Uh, given the number of arenas of um, 
everything from the inauguration to um, real estate dealings to Deutsche Bank, on and on the list goes, it would seem to me that there's more than enough work to keep New York busy. And and if anything, if there could be uh, something potential uh, brought against the president, that might be the better arena. What are your thoughts? Craig, um, I'm tempted to respond by saying I would rather set myself on fire that engage in any part of the retail political politics. But since you have dragged me kicking and screaming <laughs> into answering your question, uh, the reason why it's a, it's a gamble is that uh, the Democrats would feel more in control if they are doing everything in the House rather than hoping against hope that by outsourcing the process of chasing Donald Trump through the courts, whether that process would have a positive result, whether it would have any result in time. And when the stakes are that high, you tend to want to have as much control as you can rather than outsource the process. That's my outsider's guess on how the political calculations are being made. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think there's also a, a bit of political uh, ego involved here in the sense that if the source or the, the process is outsourced, um, it, dependent upon the nature of the outcome, uh, you can't take blame for it, but neither can you take credit. And, and maybe that's a point that's just too rich uh, for, for Democrats to want to surrender. If you've just joined our conversation, visiting today with best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, he hosts the Bob Zadek show Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., aired locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m., The Answer, KTRB. Check it out, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Bob's got a a whole plethora of great resources available, podcasts of previous programs, a number of books as well. And you can get all that information on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. We're going to talk about one of his more recent books, that goes to the political point of some of the electioneering. We heard it at the campaign two years ago, and uh, you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be more discussion that surrounds the topic of education. It's more than just a major talking point. It, it's key at, at multiple levels to some campaigns. Certainly, you might say it was um, a, a pivot point for the campaign of, of people like uh, Bernie Sanders, and no doubt others will be jumping on the bandwagon. The bigger, broader question beyond just Okay, free education. Well, there's no free lunch, so who really pays for this? And that is, are we being sold a bit of a bill of goods in terms of the caliber and quality of so-called higher education today? We're going to open up that can of worms next as our conversation with best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek continues right after this. Let's get a look at traffic right now for you. Pause real quick. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center at 521. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're talking about, uh, well, all things politics, constitution, et cetera, et cetera, with syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, Bob Zadek. Bob, on, on the election issue, I want to pivot to a po- topic that certainly was pivotal in the uh, the 2018 election cycle and no doubt, um, uh, and 2016 as well, and no doubt will be again a year hence, and that is the issue of education. 
Certainly Bernie Sanders has made much of the uh, so-called free education mantra. And and it sounds great to be able to offer people free education, free lunch. Hey, how about a car in every garage and a free chicken in every pot? The reality is there is no free lunch. Somebody has to pay for all of this. And um, as some have suggested, um, not only are there questions about the kind of education that we're paying huge sums of money for, but then, too, whether or not perhaps we've leaned so heavily on the importance of, quote-unquote, a higher education that we have completely uh, invalidated uh, the value, if at all, of things like vocational training. Let's talk first to this whole issue of free education. When you hear Bernie Sanders and, and some others jump on this bandwagon and the notion of offering young people an opportunity to go to a two- or four-year college of their choice absolutely free, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, um secession, um, moving <laughs> to a foreign country, um, uh, tearing up my passport. Those are the first things that come to mind. Then when I calm down, I'm reminded of the fact that it is a very interesting economic statistic. And I try to organize my life so that the decisions I make and the opinions that I form are data-driven, not emotionally driven. One can't always succeed, but that, of course, is a goal. And therefore, I'll just start by discussing a very important statistic. Over the past, let's say, 20 years, maybe more, there are two segments of our economy where the prices have constantly increased at a rate beyond inflation. That is, there are two segments of our economy, both very important, both where prices go up much faster than overall prices of other goods and services. And those two areas of the economy, both important, are higher education and health care. What do higher education and health care have in common that the other segments of our economy do not? They are the only two segments of our economy where the buyer, the consumer of the goods or service, the patient in health care and the student in higher education, in neither of those buyers of the services have any idea what it costs and do not write a check for those services at the time the services are consumed. Students go to college for four years as if there's no money exchanged whatsoever because they're doing it on the tab. It's buy now, pay later. When you have health care, you don't know what it costs because the insurance company pays or your employer pays or the government pays. And far as you're concerned, but for the deductible, it's kind of free. So you don't care what it costs. Students don't care what it costs because they don't feel the expenditure. So therefore, Universities know there is no price sensitivity. They can pretty much charge whatever they want. And the second reason universities can charge pretty much whatever they want is because there's no real way for the buyer to determine a value. Craig, I ask our friends out there in your radio audience to imagine other expenditures they have made. When they shop for a house, they have unbelievable sources of information to make sure they are not overpaying for their house. 
they get lots of information. It's also true of a car, it's true of clothing, it's true of food, everything else one can comparison shop and buy, get the greatest value. It is impossible, impossible to make a comparative shopping for price and value when it comes to a university. So since nobody knows what it's worth in the in the marketplace, nobody knows how much they are paying. Are you surprised that colleges are so expensive? Well, you know, and, and the other irony just that kind of fits with that hand in glove is is the the I think erroneous notion that because it's more expensive, therefore it must be best. Uh, and, and I'm not suggesting that if you go to Stanford versus a local JC that uh, they ought to be on a par, but historically there seems to be kind of the notion, and we've seen this uh, unfold, I think, with the, with the recent um, uh, college scandals uh, where people are paying huge sums of money and bribes and uh, there's extortion going on. I mean, you, you about name it. It seems like it's being run by the mob, practically, of people stumbling over themselves to get their child into these higher um, paying or higher costing universities and college campuses. And I think perhaps we, we've kind of been sold on the idea that if it's, you know, a very expensive education, therefore it must be really good. That's correct. And of course, Craig, you can, as I said a moment ago, if you're buying a house, you can do comparison shopping. Now, how in the world can you look at, and Craig, you have mentioned a two-year community college, uh, which is basically a trade school, and I say that with profound respect. People need to learn how to be productive, need to acquire the skills. So you look at, for example, a two-year trade school, um, state-run trade school, and its tuition, and you compare the tuition to four years at Stanford. Nobody, nobody can make a decision which is a better value. It's impossible. No one has the information. So you can't comparison shop, so you don't even try, and therefore you just pay whatever the bill is, whatever the school wants. But now you have the issue we started with, which is student loans. And we used to have a system where banks were the lenders, and banks made loans based upon their anticipation of a student's ability to repay. They would look at the student's in future income as a result of going to college, and the banks made a decision, and they charged interest accordingly, just what you'd expect the bank to do. But now you have the government has... Uh, taken over the entire lending process. They don't make decisions based upon ability to pay. They make purely political decisions. And basically, they just give everybody loans, no credit decision, and hope for the best. So now you have students who nobody is telling them they can't be able to repay these loans. So you have students who are buying something, the most expensive purchase of their life, without any sense of whether they will acquire skills to earn back the amount of money they have paid to repay the loan. So is it any wonder that some student who graduates with a degree in ethnic dance that costs him $120,000 a year, and now he finds out that General Motors is not hiring many students who with an ethnic dancing 
degree, and now this student is now a barista as a result of four years of college and 120k of tuition. So there's no valuation of what what you are getting as a result of the degree. And there's so certainly, I think, it, no, and, and to your point, I think there is a fundamental disconnect taking place here insofar as we will often see students that are graduating with degrees in liberal arts and literature, things of this sort. Not that those are, are, are bad arenas, not that those are necessarily horrible disciplines. It's just that they're not disciplines that are going to necessarily afford you a $250,000 a year income in order to pay back the $250,000 thousand dollars that you owe in student loans. So there's a fundamental disconnect there. No one would walk into a Volkswagen dealership and expect to pay Mercedes-Benz prices. You would expect to pay Mercedes-Benz prices for a Mercedes-Benz, but they're entirely different cars. No disparaging on Volkswagen. I just picked a, <laughs> picked a brand off the top of my head. The point is there's a fundamental disconnect. Nobody is challenging the fundamental disconnect. And you have to wonder, as this continues on, whether or not the next serious potential bubble could, in fact, be student loans. We'll talk a bit about that coming up around the corner. We're visiting today with best-selling author Bob Zadek. Bob, by the way, has got a new book out called The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product. The book is new and available at bobzadek.com. That's bobzadek.com. And you better believe we all need to get educated on this topic, pardon the obvious pun, uh, because it's going to be a major turning point as we head into the 2020 election, as well as it should be. The problem is the debate is being forced into, gee, wouldn't it be great to all have this for free, when the reality is we need to reevaluate not only what's being charged, the caliber of the education that's being given as to how it relates or matches to what the economy is is asking for in so insofar as uh, the the, uh, the job world and then whether or not we are creating a straw man here uh, with with the amount of indebtedness that we are saddling our young people with that they start out life with this major cloud hanging over their head, economic cloud hanging over their head, perhaps doing a major disservice and going into it with eyes wide open. That's the sad part. Bob Zadek with us today. Information available on the web about his show at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A brief timeout. We'll come back to more of our conversation right after we get you an update on traffic. 538, we're a bit late. You're stuck in traffic, rain, weather, all that crazy stuff. So let's find out why and a look at the road ahead from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I got a few more minutes here with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. We're talking about higher education. Bob deals with a topic, by the way, in a new book called The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product. And, you know, beyond the concern of what's happening with the price point, the inability to evaluate uh, the, 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 the dollar-to-value of education component here. Uh, there's another issue that a lot of parents, I think, get frustrated with, and that is we send our children off to college or university to come back with a marketable skill and a degree, 
And not only do they walk away with degrees in liberal arts and literature and no jobs that are compensatory to the the cost of the degree, but then oftentimes they find themselves in these uh, hotbeds of political indoctrination. Uh, Ironically, we've gone from what used to be in the 60s, um, promoting free speech on campus to now speech-free campuses because of um, the snowflakes that are out there that are afraid to engage in certain subject matters. I mean, is it a time for us, Bob, from that standpoint, to not only evaluate the cost, but also the caliber of, 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 of the quality of the education and the environment, the political and, and, and the social environment in which it's taking place? It does. You're exactly right, Craig. And I would, uh, if I may, there is help available to all your listeners who have who are either college age students themselves or who's who's have children who are college age there is an organization that i must give a quick shout out to called fire foundation for individual rights and education they are an organization they have a very robust website where they rate every school in the country based upon their free speech principles. And if I can give you an economic tip, uh, I graduated from uh, Syracuse University, and I was I, way back a long time ago. And I, of course, sort of somewhat automatically as an alum felt it was my duty to give Syracuse University a donation based upon ability, what money I had available, because uh, I was an alum and that was my duty. That's what you did. Well, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, rates universities, and they rate them green, yellow, and red, red being horrible free speech. Well, I discovered that my university, Syracuse, is deeply in the red zone. They are punitive in their free speech policies. Well, what did I do? I cut them off. No more money to my um, anti-free speech college. So just by checking the FIRE website, I have saved myself over the years many thousands of dollars in money I didn't give to those restrictive speech uh, professionals over at Syracuse University. So those of you who are considering sending your children or or, or considering going to college yourselves, an important part of the buying decision, if you care about free speech as you should care about free speech, check out FIRE as part of the decision-making process. So, Craig, you're exactly right, and there is at least one organization that has our back when it comes to free speech. And, you know, that's a critical, important point, because as you point out, uh, many alumni for universities across the country are, are often uh, solicited for contributions. Uh, what I find ironic is oftentimes many of these schools will have multi, multi-million to hundred-plus million-dollar endowments that sit in a bank account somewhere. Meanwhile, the students are suffering to scrape together enough student loans in order to pay um, the tuition from semester to semester. I've always felt that to be an enormous disservice. And as we know, um, things and times change and shift. And you can go to a university and it can be wonderful and you're, you know, singing the old alma mater fight song at every football game. And then 30 years later, you find out 
The school is nothing like what it was when you went there. I mean, you, you mentioned about Syracuse. I mean, here is a university that was founded um, uh, under the guise of the Methodist Episcopal Church um, and, and and began with, with very laudable goals in the beginning and, as you point out, drifted into the red zone. Boy, how many schools out there are in just that same category? People write checks and have no idea what they're supporting, either through contributions as an alumni or sending your kids there. It's a great resource. I appreciate you sharing that FIRE Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Bob Zadek's new book, and we're going to have to talk more about this, uh, Robert, we need an hour. I can't do this in half an hour. Um, we're going to have to talk more about this book, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product, newly available at bobzadek.com. That's bobzadek.com. It's an important and key talking point moving into the 2020 election as it was two years ago. And I think will continue to be, not only because of those that push the notion of free education, uh, like Bernie Sanders and his um, sort of political mantra to that degree, but also because this is a topic that impacts all of us, not just because we have kids who are students and we're writing the checks, but we're also talking about the future of our nation and leaders. Are we preparing minds to be able to deal with the challenges of the 21st century? Or are they all coming out with degrees in liberal arts? What is that anyway? Our thanks to Bob Zadek, the show, the Bob Zadek program, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. at 8.60 a.m. The Answer, KTRB. And it's a great alternative to a lot of the mindless talking head program Sunday morning where they not only explore the important questions but also talk with the folks that can help provide many of the answers. The Bob Zadek Show, Sundays, 8 a.m., on 860 AM, The Answer. com. We look at traffic now at 548. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are perhaps all painfully familiar with these statistics. On average in America, one out of every Two divorces ends in, or marriages rather, ends in a divorce. And if you're in that awkward position of a separation, sometimes we think this is a, a cooling off period, you know, like sending the kids to opposite corners, let them come back, reevaluate, and, and hopefully um, determine that they want to remain in the marriage. The statistics in that arena are even worse, that on average, marriages that wind up in separation, 80% of which then wind up in divorce court. These are not statistics for us to be proud of as Americans, and quite frankly, these statistics are as bad inside of the church. Joining me now, someone who's written about this topic. In fact, you're probably familiar with her writings. She's appeared on um, programs like Focus on the Family. You've read her writings in Today's Christian Woman. She's appeared on radio and TV across the country. Linda Rooks has penned a new book called Fighting for Your Marriage While Separated, a practical guide for the brokenhearted, newly released by New Growth Press. And, Linda, great to have you on the program. Well, it's great to be with you. It's rather uh, nostalgic because I graduated from San Francisco State University. So, Well, great to have you here on the air in the San Francisco <laughs> nice Bay there. Area. Uh, Linda, let's uh, let's kind of perhaps uh, reveal the fact that listeners are about to hear from an expert. You've been down this road. Um, you and your husband now have been married over 40 years. 
But something happened in your marriage uh, at about the midway point, a little after uh, 20 years, that that led to what was ultimately a three-year separation. By the grace of God, you did not wind up in divorce court and were able to uh, come together and find reconciliation. Some hear that number, particularly those that are maybe newly married and say, wow, after 20 years, don't you get used to each other enough or you kind of know one another's bad habits and you you make the decision to to stay with it thick and thin um, until death do us part? Tell us what what happened and, and why do you think from your own personal experience that so many marriages that go into this so-called separation period, the, the separate corners as I referred to earlier, ultimately wind up 80% of which in divorce? Well, for us, what happened to us is that um, we did have a pretty good marriage. We had a great marriage to begin with, and and we had a good marriage for most of the time, but we weren't resolving issues. And one of the things that is is pretty common, I think, with a lot of people is that they're just shuffling the problems under the rug, and, you know, they're not dealing with things, and, and then eventually they just start piling up, and and a lot of times that comes after 20 years, you know, after 20 years and and at the time when uh, perhaps you're starting to approach the empty nest time, um, those problems and those issues that have been unresolved just start really coming to a head. And, and that's one of the big things that happened with us. Um, and in terms of why people who are separated don't get back together um, more often is that... Um, Really, when people become separated, so often they feel hopeless. Um, at least one of them. Very often, what's happening in a, in a separation actually is a lot of times one of them wants out of the marriage, and one of them doesn't. And the one who wants out of the marriage is pretty much kind of you know heading the other way, and the one who wants the marriage feels hopeless and really doesn't know what to do, um, perhaps the one who's been wanting out of marriage says, I don't love you anymore, or I don't think I love you anymore, um, and so the person who's left thinks, well, what can I do to change their feelings, and I can't make them love me if they don't love me, and so they feel hopeless, but what they don't realize is that, for one thing, feelings change. Uh, what what you feel now, six months from now, you might feel totally different. Um, and so that's a basic thing, that, that your feelings do change. And um, the other thing is that um, it takes time for things to turn around, and people don't realize it. And And the other thing is that one person who is committed to their marriage, if they really are committed to resolving the marriage, they themselves can very often turn the marriage around. But it does take time. I guess some of this oftentimes comes as surprise, too. I mean, we, we often hear where uh, one spouse saw it coming, the other completely is taken by surprise. And I suppose the one that saw it coming or is um, sort of pushing for or initiating the separation, they, they've almost made up their mind, haven't they? That, that in their mind, separation is not cooling off to rethink, repray, reevaluate, but rather a, as the beginning of sort of the, the disillusion of the marriage. And so I guess the partner who didn't see it coming 
feels terribly helpless in a circumstance like that, I would think. Right. And and the thing one of the things is too, one of the person who has left, often they're not determined on a divorce at that point, but they don't know really what they want, you know, and and one of the things that happens um in a separation one reason I think that it often ends up in a divorce rather than a separation is that the person who has been left behind doesn't know what to do and and usually they feel pretty desperate you know they want to think what is going on what can i do to you know we need to talk about our issues we need to resolve this we need to you know get it all together i need to find out what he's thinking and what she wants to do and 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 so they're really chasing after them to get answers and the person who has left very often they're just really confused and don't know what they want but if the one who has been left is chasing after them to find answers, they're pushing them further away. And so as they get pushed further away, then, of course, there's more likelihood for a divorce. So so um, one of the things I talked about in the book is the fact that um, you really need to give that person space for a while, and that means you don't call them or talk, text them or email them or anything, just for a little while, give them some space, let them kind of figure things out, and then um, even when you do start communicating with them again, you don't try to talk about the issues, you just are positive. You know, you use positive words, you try to be encouraging, try to accept where they are, accept the fact that they are in a place of... um, of pain and of confusion, and um, just give them a little space. So that is, uh, and that can make a big difference. There's, I have all sorts of stories in my book, um, along with my husband and I reconciling our marriage. We have been doing um, classes for the last 12 years for people whose marriages are in trouble, and we have seen so many marriages come back together, and some have come with divorce papers in hand. And so it's a matter of, you know, handling it right, doing the right thing, and it's not the natural thing. You know, the natural thing we want to do is often not exactly the right thing, but um, focusing on God is a big part of it, you know, really putting it in God's hands and letting Him guide you. Um, He will take you in a direction that's not always just the most natural way to go. And certainly that faith component, we'll talk more about it after the break, that faith component critically important because oftentimes uh, the two partners in the marriage can be at odds. One is working to save the marriage. The other one is working to escape or not sure uh, how they feel about the marriage. Uh, I would imagine, as you suggest in your case and with so many others, the so-called empty nest syndrome um, is is uh, such a major factor because here so much of your life and relationship has been centered around uh, children and child rearing and so forth, and now suddenly that dynamic changes dramatically when the kids are off to marriage or college or what have you, and you wake up one day and you realize, I don't know who this is that I'm married to, um, and and suddenly begin asking yourself questions and evaluating where you see your life and your marriage relationship 
headed and whether or not you still put the same importance on it today as you did when you first married and said, I do, many years ago. Um, So questions of faith become critically important. We'll talk more about that after our time out. Linda Rooks is with us today, the author of a new book called Fighting for Your Marriage While Separated, a Practical Guide for the Brokenhearted, newly released by New Growth Press. This time out, an update on traffic. Back with more in our conversation with best-selling author Linda Rooks right after this. Right now, though, let's uh, converse about traffic. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 